Hello and welcome to episode number 62 of the Drunken UX Podcast. In this week's episode, we are going to be talking about how the company Webflow is tackling their accessibility strategy to produce a more accessible platform and products for their users. I am your host, Michael Feenan, but I am not joined this evening by your other other host, Aaron. Um, he unfortunately could not make it this evening, but fear not, because I have taken advantage of this situation and brought on not one, but two of the senior software engineers from Webflow, Ruben Nick and EJ Mason, to come on and talk about how they are fostering a culture of accessibility at Webflow. Speaking of Webflow, I want to give them a quick shout out because transcriptions for this episode of the Drunken UX podcast are brought to you by those same fine folks at Webflow. So if you hear anything tonight that you want to go back and reference or, or look through or you can't get to right now, Go to the show notes at drunkenux.com. We will have a full human-edited transcript there ready and waiting for you. Be sure to go check them out at webflow.com. Shoot them a, a tweet on, at Webflow on Twitter. Let them know that you appreciate their support of the show. And be sure to check out their platform. This evening I'm drinking, if you follow us actually on, on Instagram, you probably saw a couple weeks ago I posted a photo of a little mini cask um, that I'm working with right now, and I had just put in a first fill of some Jim Beam uh, Devil's Cut. Um, I'm using that right now to season the cask before I actually put uh, scotch into it, and so I'm giving it a little taste this evening, and um, it definitely, even just after a week, the edges, because Devil's Cut is a very, it, it'll, it'll hit you, but after a week in there, the sort of candied cinnamon notes come out real strong on the nose, the edges of it are sanded off, though, just a little bit, and you get, like, a, the the first taste, you get some cinnamon, some caramel, some kind of almost leathery-type um, flavors out of it. Still strong. Still definitely kicks you in the throat just a little bit, and, and is hot, but um, I'll be interested in another, I'm going to give it about a month in total in that cask before I swap it out, so we'll see, uh, I'll revisit it in a couple episodes and see how it is. Ruben, EJ! Hey, thanks for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having us, Michael. Yes, thank you. So, you two are senior software engineers at Webflow. Tell me, uh, first and foremost, what that means. <laughs> I, I feel like Webflow has a pretty good definition of what a senior software engineer is. is uh, somebody who is expected to teach and lead uh, other engineers whether that's through mentorship or uh, documentation uh, or just, you know, writing good code. It's also somebody who is comfortable taking a task on by themselves uh, and bringing it to completion. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one thing that would be worth adding is that we often are asked to define a process, particularly around accessibility, because there's not as much domain knowledge of that at our broader company. So part of our interviews actually was us scoping out a task to then complete it and execute it. I went to school actually for writing. That was what I went to university for. And you can see I don't do that anymore. But it's it's been fun to bring those skills back into this field because engineers don't often like to put words together in order. Yeah, yeah, no doubt at all. <laughs> so. 
tell me, EJ, let's start with you on this, because you said you were you went to school to be a writer. How did you go from that to getting into accessibility as something that you wanted to focus on? Well, I realized that writing and being creative in general was not going to pay the bills and keep me housed and fed. Um, and after having some good luck and some bad luck in writing, I decided that I could find skills that would support me better. And I remember that I'd always enjoyed computers and programming as a concept, but I thought it would be too hard for me because I thought there'd be too much math for me in it, in the field. And uh, I went to a boot camp to see how it was, and I, it turned out I really enjoyed it. And while there, I realized that the boot camp itself didn't really teach accessibility. And um, someone told me how important that was. And I ended up deciding to teach myself what I could. And I was invited back to that boot camp to spearhead our curriculum on accessibility. And from there, I just kind of kept finding work in accessibility. Yeah, very cool. Ruben, how about you? Yeah, so... Um... One of the uh, one of the the dark jokes we talk about in the field of accessibility is that uh, companies uh, usually get in for for only two reasons: either they know somebody with a disability or they get sued. Um, and both of those happened in in pretty rapid succession uh, for me personally. Uh, so when I was in my mid twenties, I was uh, diagnosed with keratoconus, uh, which is a degenerative eye disease. Uh, what happens is your uh, your cornea starts to become uh, it gets bumpy and it doesn't get bumpy uniforms so you cannot uh, correct it with uh, with lenses. I have a pretty mild form of it. It's continuing to progress, but so far it's uh, it's manageable. Uh, it mainly affects me uh, because my uh, the lenses of my eyes. Uh, are not uniform, they don't uh, absorb as much light. So at night, I'm, I'm functionally blind, which, uh, given my Romanian heritage, makes me a really shitty vampire. <laughs> the other part of that is uh, my previous employer, well, two employers ago, uh, when I worked at the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, uh, for an internal agency, uh, they were sued. Uh, they had an ADI lawsuit uh, filed against them. And so they got serious about accessibility. And because I was uh, a developer on staff, I got pulled into that. And uh, I've always sort of had a humanist bent in in the way that I've approached software. I, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the human-computer interaction courses I took when I was in college. and this, you know, I just sort of, I, I fell in love with it, uh, with specifically, you know, working for accessibility and, you know, advancing the cause and, you know, making sure that computers are actually usable by all of us. I'm, I'm a big fan of human computer interaction as a field. It's something that it's, it's sort of like, to me, it's the evolution of everything we talk about when we get into UX and user experience design and all of that, but it gets into so much more of of the deep end of that pool uh, in that regard. So let's uh, go real fast. I've mentioned Webflow on this show probably, I don't know, two or three, maybe four times in the past, um, usually in talking about like platforms that you can go to to edit websites on and things. Um, I've usually said, you know, this is kind of a platform that wedges itself in. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like Squarespace, Wix, these folks are probably in your competitor sphere. 
but what is how do you guys view Webflow as a product? What would you describe it as? Webflow is a visual development platform that's oriented toward professionals who want to have uh, depth of control over their websites. So we might recommend uh, Squarespace, we being the people on this call, to friends of ours who don't really want to put, think too much about the sites that they build or want to get something simple and don't really need control. But Webflow differentiates itself because it provides a lot of authorial control over the kinds of content and the interesting choices you can make with design and the other uh, features it has, like the CMS, which some people in, the, in this field do have, some companies in this field do have. But uh, Webflow is exciting because of the depth and complexity it does offer to users. It, the way I think I've described it to folks too in the past is Webflow is significantly more friendly on the back end to a normal web developer coming in and saying, yeah, but I want to change some of this stuff. You facilitate that, I think, better than many other platforms. Is that a, a fair... I'm saying all this having never used your back end, but just going off you know, stuff I've read over the last few years about you. I would say that's fair based on uh, me having never really used much of Squarespace or Wix or the like, but having been asked occasionally to help people make changes because I'm a web developer, yeah. uh, I found it very hard to even give them advice without trying to spend a lot of time learning how to use their account to do something, if that makes sense. I come from, uh, we were talking about backgrounds a little bit before the show started, and I was mentioning, you know, I started building websites in the 90s. I, I remember front page and installing front page extensions on hosts so that I could upload stuff. Right. And, and it was a WYSIWYG. It was designed to let you go in and grab a thing and put it in a place and upload it and have it work. The code, of course, that it put out was just garbage. Uh, Dreamweaver, <laughs> when Macromedia still owned that, um, it was very much the same kind of thing. And you've got that field. You're, it's geared towards this idea of if you can imagine it, you can build it. But your emphasis has been outputting code that is standards compliant, that doesn't make you cringe when you look at it. And I've actually been incredibly impressed um, by some of that. And I mentioned at the start of the show that Webflow is um, sponsoring the transcripts for this episode. I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's ass about this, uh, as anybody will tell you. I genuinely am impressed with uh, the kind of code output that your platform uh, has accomplished. Um, even before you started doing all the accessibility work, quite frankly. Yeah, and we really think of ourselves as an abstraction over web standards. We're not trying to replace the web in any form or shape. Rather, what we're trying to do is we're trying to open up the field of web design and you know web creativity to more people. Uh, and you know you kind of see that with you know, when you go through and you use our designer, it's very clear that you're editing, you know, divs, you're editing uh, sections, you're editing CSS classes, you're editing buttons. We don't try to hide those things from you. And in fact, we've seen people uh, use Webflow as an introduction to, you know, software engineering. I, I talk about digital ocean quite a bit, and one of the things that Aaron and I have always been really impressed with is that digital ocean came out and said we're you know we're going to be this SaaS platform for doing virtualization and provide you with all these things that AWS provides, but we're going to also own the documentation space, and 
AWS is super powerful. Anybody that's ever read their documentation will attest to the fact that they aren't very educational. <laughs> um, and to the point of writing documentation that we've already talked about, like that's one of those cases where AWS engineers wrote their documentation and it shows. DigitalOcean came in and said, we're going to write documentation that anybody can use. And it really elevated them as a competitor in that space. That's along the lines of what I also see Webflow doing some of uh, Wix, Squarespace, you know, throw any of these people around. They're, they're doing their thing, but I also don't see them putting the effort into education and information the way that Webflow is attempting to do. I would like to give a, a shout out to our education team for exactly the kinds of things that you uh, just described. It's even before I was an employee, I was really impressed by the scripts that they write and the, the articles that they write to go with the their feature content. Uh, I think that they're doing something really cool with their making it fun, but educational, the humor mixed with the information. And uh, I definitely have not seen uh, Wix or the like do those kinds of things. So this is your invitation if you're listening <laughs> to start joining us in the in the field of writing cool documentation <laughs> what's that there's a name for that that you guys have was it was it webflow college what is that uh university university webflow university we'll make sure we have a link to that in the show notes too if anybody wants to go check that out because yeah it's it's absolutely worth stopping by and, and perusing okay and so from the standpoint of uh we've got this platform that's easy for anybody to use you go up you sign up you you've got all this documentation to help out with it who is it mainly that you guys then cater to from uh, an industry standpoint? Are you getting, you know, downtown bakeries? Are you getting like big manufacturing companies? What's sort of the gamut of who you see using uh, the platform best? I would say there's a pretty wide array of business types, wouldn't you, Ruben? Yeah. What we've really seen is is a lot of like marketing teams which was really surprising to me first joining because I always assumed it was, you know, a lot of agencies, a lot of freelancers. But what we're seeing a really big uptake is uh, marketing teams owning their marketing pages. And rather than them having to go and bother an engineer for a little, you know, tiny fix of like, you know, you forgot an Oxford comma over here, the <laughs> marketing team itself uh you know owns that page and builds that page themselves uh and we've seen that with uh quite big clients and you know some of the marketing teams uh that we know of that use it uh for this use case are gusto zendesk hello sign sketch deck hypertrack so you know I feel like pretty big names. Yeah. Uh, and we're really excited about that. And we're really excited that those marketing teams uh, are now empowered uh, and that those engineers, uh, you know, are now not tearing their their hair out trying to, you know, get an M dash to render in HTML correctly. <laughs> the reason this has come up, somebody somewhere, and I'm sure it was on Twitter, uh, shared out an article that uh, came from the Webflow blog what we're doing about accessibility at Webflow. And I saw this drop last month and I read it and, and that was sort of the uh, the instigating event. I read through this and I'm like, I, I would love to talk to these guys about this. There's a whole article, of course, it's linked in the show notes that goes into all of this stuff that, they, that Webflow has been doing and what they are looking forward to over the next several months uh, through the rest of the year and into next year to try to make this platform more accessible. 
and the commitment that was apparent in that writing, uh, you do, you don't see that kind of language used very often um, in terms of just how committed they were to building a product, not just the product. And this is something that will, maybe will come up as we talk some more, but it's one thing to make a product accessible. It's another thing to make the output of that product accessible especially when you're dealing with users and with this platform that, like you were just saying, you inherently have to fight this garbage in, garbage out, gigo mentality that users can break your system. Or not break it, but, you know, they can do things that you wish they wouldn't, so to speak. That is that is where all of this came from. So first and foremost, go read that article. There's a quote, though, that I want to read out of it. To us, this is both a challenge and an opportunity to make it not only easier to create accessible websites with better tooling, but also to educate both ourselves and our customers on the principles and techniques of accessible design. And that's a, it's a short sentence with a lot packed into it. That is a lot of ground to commit to covering. So that's what we're going to talk about through the rest of the episode, is all of this stuff that you guys are doing. And uh, with an eye towards how can other people translate this advice to their company uh, because one of the things we get we struggle with constantly right is having the time to do things making the business case for it showing the importance of it and the impact of it um, these things are hard challenges and they can be really hard in the business world to a ceo time is money you know it's a throwaway kind of cliche but it is a reality of working um, and so that's what we're going to try to uh, dig into for this. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about is what you've done so far, because it's not like you hadn't done anything. There was actually quite a bit that you guys had sunk into this as far as uh, making it like a, it's a core company value for you guys now, right? That's correct. It's a, it's a high-level directive coming all the way up from Vlad, our CEO, who thinks it's very important and has shown that in the way he speaks about it on, on the internet and the way he supports the internal efforts that we're putting out. Yeah, internal efforts is an interesting uh, point, too, because all of this is great uh, it, it, you know, to hear, but you need people to know how to do it. You guys have committed internally to making sure that your developers and designers and QA folks are you know, immersed, maybe not completely, but have exposure. Maybe that, that's the best way to put it, right? They they are being exposed to what accessibility means, right? Yeah, and and it's definitely, we're, you know, we've committed to it as a company. And I think one thing that really made that clear to me is uh, EJ and I actually interviewed at the same time. Uh, and we both sort of found out uh, through our trial project that we were both interviewing for the same role, which was very <laughs> scary, by the way. Um, and uh, we both got hired. We were both, you know, very cordial. We were super encouraging to each other. I was impressed with EJ's work, quite uh, honestly. And I remember talking to my significant other afterwards. I was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to get this. This was like the, the moment in uh, uh, The Dark Knight where the Joker walks in and snaps the pool cue and is like, we're, we're going to have tryouts. <laughs> so uh, I think what showcases uh, Webflow's commitment to this is they set out only to hire one person uh, and they hired both of us because, you know, they, 
this is a priority for 2020. The, the right time to take advantage of an opportunity is when it's in front of you kind of thing. Right. So if you had to estimate right now, like of your, of your team, and I, I don't know your organizational structure, but from developers and, and whatnot, how much of your company so far has gotten training in accessibility to some degree or another? Yeah, so um, I we partnered with uh, DeQ Systems, which offers oh, yeah. uh, a course called DeQ University. Uh, if anybody is looking to learn the basics of accessibility, we would highly recommend uh, going and enrolling and taking some of those courses. I, I will second that. Their their stuff is also top notch. Yeah. I feel the need to point out that uh, if you are someone who has a disability, you you identify that way, you you uh you know you see yourself as a disabled person you can get access to the course for free simply by emailing them to ask for it oh nice i didn't know that i do know uh i've known a few folks that have worked there their business cards are both printed and in braille yes i've seen that too it's very cool so through partnering with them we've had about 30 percent of our company take some form of accessibility course uh and some of that is uh you know accessible how to build accessible websites some of that is what are the current uh accessible laws that govern your country whether that's the eu or canada or the united states some of that is uh, how do you talk to somebody who has a disability right how do you approach them how do you make sure that you are not belittling them and you know uh treating them as less than human quite frankly as is often the case uh, and some of it is also, you know, how do you uh, approach the topic of accessibility in writing? It's really, and some people might say, well, 30%, man, that means 70% of you haven't had it. 30% is light years ahead of most other organizations. Um, that really, I, I just want to emphasize like how impressive I think that is to have committed to that from a learning standpoint and, and the number of angles that that impacts like you were just saying the the amount of uh coverage that gives you is really quite impressive and it builds a culture it's that's what you're striving for i i shied away because of this this point that you've got here somebody had written this in um you're not accessibility experts and that's almost how i in introduced you and i'm like nope that's i don't like that phrase because you mentioned you're you're trying to build a culture of accessibility and i think that's really valuable to me anyway I, I see it as something that emphasizes you know outcomes over issues to go back to the lawsuit thing or stuff like that a lot of the times accessibility problems end up being something of a punch list we check the contrast we check our alt tags you know and okay we're done we did the things but that's not the way accessibility works it's like anything else it's part of a process and cycle it's it's identifying door handles over door knobs. It's about understanding that elevators don't exist just because you have multiple floors, and it's easy for me because it's easy for everybody. And that's something that I think is sort of a hats off that you guys have embraced that idea of what it means to make accessibility be part of a culture. So the reason why we we really don't want to use the term accessibility experts is because uh, accessibility needs are so broad. Uh, EJ has some accessibility needs. I have some accessibility needs. 
but that doesn't mean we can speak to everything, right? I personally do not suffer from motion or animation sickness, mm -hmm. so I cannot speak to that. And it's important for me to be aware of that. I can speak up for those people, but I should never speak over them. Us trying to elevate ourselves as experts, I think, would dis diminish those voices. Uh, and, and it would mean that we would become uh, stagnant in what we pursue as accessible because it would be defined by us, by the quote unquote experts. The, I've phrased this, and I think Aaron and I have both talked about this on, on the show before. Um, one thing we've always emphasized is to use a screen reader with websites. Now, a screen reader is a very narrow scope in terms of a particular accessibility problem. I can install a screen reader, though. I can use the screen reader. I can listen to it. But my experience with that screen reader is not the experience that somebody who is blind is going to have with it. And when you really sit down with a blind user and listen to the way they use a screen reader, it will absolutely blow your mind how different their experience is. Because even though I can, you know, uh, intellectually kind of uh, understand what I need to do to test that, I don't have that experience. And it's very hard to emulate. And it makes for a barrier that I think is intimidating to people. And it's one of the reasons why I think we don't do more in some cases. But that's okay. It's okay to ask questions and to reach out to people and things. And, and that's what I hope. That's that's the culture piece, I think, that comes in here is getting to be okay with asking those questions of folks and listening. Listen to the feedback that you get when people give it to you is uh, humbling, to say the least, in some of those cases. That is one of the goals that we have for our future work in adding education to WebFlow University. Uh, we would like to... I mean, I know I personally would like to see that as we start writing more articles about accessibility, whether it pertains to Webflow specifically as a platform or to best practices in, in design in general, it, uh, as Ruben was touching on earlier, it is a kind of hollow service if, if you try to center yourself as the arbiter of what accessibility is, even if you have barriers that you yourself encounter on the web or off the web. Yeah. So with what you guys have done, You've so far you've been working on microcopy in the tool, so that's like little you know hints and and information as people are using the platform. You've you know done things like make alt text a bigger component of of uh, image elements and and brought that to the forefront, which always raises an interesting question to me. We talk about alt text a lot. This is almost a rhetorical question, but I sometimes wonder: Do users know what alt text is? Like what the word alt means? <laughs> Um, and I don't know, has, do you have, have you guys run into that by chance? I have all throughout my career at different <laughs> levels of, of uh, knowledge and different kinds of teams. Uh, I, I wouldn't speak for Ruben, but it seems like a very common meme in our field. Absolutely. I would like to see us use just descriptive text. Let's just call it what it is. Let's stop using alt. Alt is itself a little obfuscating, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it is, but I agree. Let's see, you highlighted that you've changed uh, CSS backgrounds. This is actually a, an interesting, but also one that I think is overlooked frequently, especially as we've gotten better about how we use imagery in CSS and the fact that we can do, you know, CSS masking now with images and, and control the shape of things and, and where things are positioned and radiuses and all of this. But images in CSS 
can't have that alternative descriptive text associated with them. And then uh, you've gone through and just generally, because you've got, you guys have a library of um, themes. Is that, I, I maybe I'm using that phrase wrong, layouts. Is uh, that components. Components. Um, and you've been making improvements across the board to pretty much all of those types of elements, right? We're working steadily through them as a list of things that are currently in our docket. Uh, we do have uh, layouts in the sense of their, their templates that do offer a several components configured together in a certain way to give you a starting point. But we don't do themes in terms of here's a set of color palettes for you to use on a site, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you guys, and this is another just sort of offhand thought. Uh, we've talked many times about web components on the show, um, and it's something that I'm kind of in the middle of right now with some other work. Um, do you guys leverage web components to any real degree within the back end, or is that something that so far is you're trying to stick more to straight up normal semantic HTML? So kind of. We are sticking to HTML, but uh, we do, uh, recently we've introduced something called symbols and symbol overrides, which allow you to create, uh, you know, a group of different components that you can then reuse uh, safely across, uh, across your site, overriding certain properties of them, which is, you know, it, that hits the same basic set of ideas of web components. Okay. So a lot of our our, our current work is uh, is invisible because we want to we want to do as much as we can for the user as possible for the visual developer as possible. Right now we have it so uh, quite a few of our components, uh, specifically the tab component, which was uh, a tremendous effort on EJ. If you click publish, that tab component is now accessible by screen readers and and keyboard users and you haven't had to do anything and that's been that's been a tremendous push because our platform is so configurable there is a million different use cases and i promise you we've hit bugs in all of them oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah no doubt been, it has been so hard to make sure that we do not break people's sites uh, because the irony of breaking somebody's site to make it accessible is not lost on us. The And let me ask a question about that. So like talking about tabs, because tabs are something that, you know, in a visual design we have defined really well, but tabs aren't a thing in the spec. They aren't something that exists. So what was the process there in terms of adding, you know, was ARIA roles? What kind of workflow did you go through there to make those be more accessible? There aren't tabs in the spec of HTML, but the but the idea of a tab does exist as part of the ARIA spec. Yeah. And uh, I won't go too into the weeds here, but those two things aren't, aren't the same. And so in order to make the alignment happen, we had to reassign the roles of the HTML that we produced to represent the pieces of a tab component. What, what I would love to know, and, and this is not the time or place for the question, but I would love to know how on the back-end side of that you deployed and rolled that out to people because <laughs> i can imagine the engineering required to republish those elements and and make them all be uh in line with your new code 
It certainly is a very impressive effort the way that uh, <laughs> stuff happens on the back end. So shout out to our team for doing all the really cool engineering that has made all this possible because we're still learning to interface with all their hard work. Yeah, like you say, you don't want to break the stuff that is already out there because that's right. a real quick way to make uh, the, the clients angry. Exactly. Yeah, quick quick shout out to Chase Adams, who is a senior engineer on our infrastructure team, for his tremendous patience uh, in guiding and helping us do safe deploys. Not only now, but during our interviews as well, he had to help us both out when we had questions when things went wrong, because they always do, right? <laughs> so let's uh, you you mentioned uh the future of course now you're writing more content but of course in, down the road you plan on uh, bolstering what you've got in webflow university um but even in inside of your editor itself right you've got some stuff that's going on there that can provide like is it instant feedback is it uh like publish level feedback like how is the tool itself helping facilitate to the editor who may have no you know let's let's imagine it's it's, uh, you know, grandma's dumpling shop. You know, she has no clue what any of this stuff means, but your tooling is going to be designed to help facilitate this, right? There are certain things that we can invisibly fix for our visual developers, but ultimately there are things that we can't. Uh, some of these are uh, alt tags. So we spoke a little bit about them earlier. There's this idea... Uh, that you can just uh, use machine learning to generate alt tags. Yeah, I've, uh, this I've is a bad this. idea <laughs> because uh, oftentimes machine learning uh, can be uh, racist, can be classist, can be sexist, and that's the last thing you want to do is uh, introduce something that can, uh, you know, be increase barriers for uh, accessibility. There are some articles on that that I've I've read. I'll try to find a couple of them and throw them in the show notes now that you brought it up. But yeah, a lot of people don't realize, and I'll use I'll reuse a phrase: garbage in, garbage out. It's funny how that applies to machine learning in particular. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, our our field has uh, a diversity problem, and I think we see that in uh, the the training sets that are used. And so we see that in the output of our machine learning models. With that aside, all of these things, they have to be done manually. And in fact, we believe that there's uh, currently only about 30 to 40% of accessibility problems that can be fixed through automated tooling. Uh, a lot of it is manual because you're dealing with humans, yeah. right? You're ultimately dealing with another human being. Uh, and so you need to connect to that human on a real human level. And so you need to understand their needs. You need to understand, you know, how they use their tooling. And so we are trying to uh, create a tool that showcases these errors and then guides you through fixing them, whether that's uh, bad alt text, whether that's bad contrast, whether that is not having, um, not including everything into, uh, into ARIA regions where people can find things easily. Maybe your headers are out of order, which confuses somebody using a screen reader. You know, we really want to create a tool that surfaces these, but also teaches you why they're important. Yeah. And I would, 
a hundred percent agree with that, especially on like the, the 30 to 40% uh, line. I've talked to folks at side improve. I've talked to, you know, a lot of these companies that do automated scanning and whatnot. And it's easy to check the mathematical stuff. Color contrast uh, comes to mind. Um, one of the new uh, WCAG specs, a minimum hit area needs to be 44 by 44 pixels. I think it's like, we can check those kinds of things really easily, but usability goes so far beyond the the strictly mathematical and that's where we run into the most trouble reading level reading level is an accessibility issue and making sure that the content you're writing is available to people is incredibly hard and so just the fact that you're building that far is i think a an a testament to how far you're trying to push things forward for that industry Let's go into sort of the tail end uh, of tooling. To me, this is QA. So one area, I've been incredibly blessed in terms of, we've had a couple QA folks on our team over the last few years that have been really tapped into accessibility. So even when we forget about it, they tend to catch things for us. And that's on accident. Like they, they were not trained on it. They just also had an interest in it. What from that standpoint? Because I know you guys have a lot of stuff upcoming. You've got a lot of things in the pipeline that you're working on. What advice would you offer in terms of how you would like to see? Because when we let's go back to a phrase, the culture of accessibility. That means designers need to know about it, developers need to know about it, but also your QA folks need to know about it. How would you advise folks to to start folding that into their process? Uh, the question of how to start is always a difficult one because everything seems important when you have nothing about accessibility in place. Uh, but I could tell you what my pipe dream would be, which would be that people who do QA have access to a multitude of devices so that they're not just testing on Mac OS, they're not just testing on Windows. They have access to an, an iPad of some kind and an Android phone so that they can test TalkBack, which is the Android screen reader. They can test VoiceOver, which is the Mac OS iOS screen reader. They can cover... Uh, the different browsers, of course, like we're used to testing for for front end, but they can also test all the screen readers across all the important and commonly used combinations of browser and screen reader. Uh, I'll throw in there um, just a quick plug, and it doesn't get into like the screen reader level. Someday, I'm going to cross my fingers. Um, AWS now has Device Farm, which is a, a service you can plug into to do uh, like testing and things across whether it's multiple browsers and mobile devices and things like that, it's at least a start. And if you don't have a bunch of devices, we've got a, at, at, at our HQ, I know there's a um, filing cabinet <laughs> with folders in it. And the folders literally have iPads and Kindles and all of this in it. But uh, Device Farm is a start towards uh, virtualizing some of that process. It's at least something, but it doesn't do... Uh, like I say, the screen reader side and some of that, which I think is the ultimate uh, uh, consolation, so to speak there. That's a consolation is not the right word I should use there, but I'm already, uh, I'm now into my gentleman Jack. So I apologize for that. Yeah. And you know, one, one thing that EJ and I have, have talked about a lot is uh, ultimately in order for this initiative to be successful in order for the, uh, published websites from the Webflow designer to be accessible, 
it can't just be us. And, and that's why we've really stressed a culture of accessibility. In fact, when we joined, we spent two months just writing documentation, just encouraging people to do education. Because while me and EJ can do audits and they're fine, they're not great, they're just fine. That's just not a sustainable practice. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've really sort of created this culture of like, let's talk about it. If you, if you notice something, let's come talk about it and, you know, we'll teach you, we'll train you. And we've had quite a few different people from uh, across the company just come to us with random pieces uh, of the Webflow product. Uh, and even if they aren't necessarily in our team's quote unquote scope, uh, we've pair programmed and, and helped a lot of folks understand, you know, why maybe something isn't accessible and, and what we can do to get it to that point. So at the end of the day, one of the big challenges, and you said something early on that really uh, struck a chord with me, which was your CEO from the start is on board with uh, these efforts and the value, and he sees the importance of it to, uh, you know, build a better web. That's why I make this show is to give education and to help people do better with things. A lot of folks don't work at those companies. Um, and so you have to make the case for why this is worth digging into and why it's worth spending time on as a trade-off. There is an article um, that I'll have a link from the Google Design. Uh, uh, well, it's, it's Google Design's blog. I think it's on Medium, so I don't know if it's their official blog or not. But uh, Susanna Zariski? Um, I always have trouble with names, but that's a well-known fact at this point. Um, there's a good article there that I'll have linked in the show notes. It's it's a little longer, but there's a ton of information in it. We'll have a couple others that will reference some of the stuff we're going to talk about. But it's always possible to make this case. And I, I think we can dig in a little bit on this, though. You know, I don't know for you guys, was this something that started grassroots from your developers and your designers? Did it, was it? Uh, passed down from the CEO? How did you guys make the case for the value of investing in your accessibility efforts? I think that luckily the case was made before we became part of the team. Everyone, uh, Everyone's a broad uh, term, but people around us, people who were at the higher levels, at the executive levels, and at management levels uh, knew that it was important. And they saw hiring us as individual contributors as a way to uh, to invest in that intention to make a better web. So it's come from both directions, which I think is the way to do it. It's to have contributors who know how to help bring up the floor and people who can make decisions to allow those contributors to, to, to do their work. And if nothing else, right, at the end of the day, Section 508 is a thing that exists. That's a starting point, if nothing else, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. We, having come from a university background, that factored in heavily to my work. Policy 1210 is Kansas's statute on it. You've mentioned, of course, the, the whole lawsuit sort of underpinning to motivate people. That's a terrible reason to get started. But, you know, that sort of mitigation can at least form the basis for an argument, I think, right, in terms of why some attention should be paid to it from the start. Mm -hmm. The... There's there's a note here. I didn't write this. I don't know if uh, one of you two threw this in here. Uh, WCAG is not a finish line. That is so much more true than people, I think, give it credit for, that everything we do is a process. 
the way we approach accessibility has changed from when I started. I built my first website in, I think, 1998 is uh, when I started. What we had available to us then is not what we have available to us now. And that process of constantly trying to iterate on what we know is at least it's a motivating factor for me in terms of always trying to improve upon the things I did before. We joke about a lot about looking at code you wrote two years ago and cringing because, you know, it reflects so much of what you didn't realize you knew. But accessibility works in the same way. Table layouts to div layouts, you know, is the classic example I'll throw out there. But um, as far as, I mean, that's that's the easy stuff, though. That's the sort of easy mentality. What about from an education standpoint? Um, motivates you guys and, and whether it's Webflow or any company that they could dig into. I'll take a second to speak uh, personally about this topic for me. I didn't mention when we were doing intros, but I have a disability. I've been disabled from birth for my entire life. I have what's called cerebral palsy. I have spastic diplegia. That means that my left side is weaker than my right side. I have trouble walking. I'm also low vision. I use sunglasses so that I can see. So for my entire life, the built environment has been sometimes a major barrier to me. And when I learned to code, I was ignorant about the kinds of barriers that I was creating on the web. And all this to say that to me, the biggest talking point of why this is important and how to educate and how to, to move the needle on accessibility in culture and in companies is to talk about ableism. That, and that's a tough word, I think, for people because they feel like it's this new age kind of thing. But it, it's not. It's all about understanding why the things we do don't reflect our experiences. I'm 38. I'm a 38-year-old white male. I understand that I live in a world that has benefited me in a lot of ways that I will never understand. But it requires stepping out of yourself a little bit to understand that other people don't have your experience and other people aren't going to interact the way you do now. And understanding that I will not interact with this stuff the way I interact with it now. I may lose my vision. I may lose my motor control. I may lose my mental uh, ability to read or do things. All of these things, you know, the, the classic phrase, we're all temporarily abled, right? Mm -hmm. We all are going to experience some level of disability down the road. And baking that into our thinking now will benefit the way we work moving forward. Correct me if I'm being unfair in in any of that, but that's just the way I've thought. Oh no, about I it. I I think that the way that you are what you're saying is is very important to acknowledge. And in fact, Ruben and I had a discussion about this particular philosophy the first day that we met. Um, uh, I think it's important to recognize that all bodies uh, have potential for failure or for illness or for injury. But uh, my motivation has been the fact that there are people who are disabled now who are not having their civil rights met. The WCAG is part of American federal law, and people's federal federal rights, geez, I can't talk, have been violated by the fact that we, as a culture, are not even doing the minimum, which is the WCAG, which is Section 508, to make the web a more equitable place. One thing that we worry about is if we, you know, center it on ourselves or or even people close to us, like, you know, let's say our, our grandmother who, you know, uses a walker, then we're then we're not centering it on the people who need it right now. And 
we're not going to see their needs. And because we're not going to see their needs, we are only going to meet a bare minimum. We cannot push accessibility forward if we focus on ourselves because your needs are never going to be the needs of everybody. Right. There's a topic that's going to come up here, and I don't know if it'll be on the next episode or the one after that. Um, so just keep listening. Subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. Do those things. Uh, <laughs> there's an article that's uh, been making the rounds about the accessibility of state COVID-19 sites. That's a really interesting exercise in that because the people who need the information the most from those are the people who are most likely to have any number of disabilities, whether it's motor control, low vision, things like that, that it looks at the accessibility of those sites. And while the outcomes of it were better than expected, they still had a lot of failings that were important to acknowledge. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that like, if I have to build that kind of site, I need to be cognizant of who's meant to consume it, for instance, um, or if it's Amazon, Amazon dealing with uh, all of the online ordering that's going on right now and things like that, and how accessible is their site? Um, I've never really gone deep into the accessibility of Amazon, but quite frankly, I think that would be a great future episode to see, can I order an item if I close my eyes all day and, you know, temporarily affect my vision? I don't know, um, but those kinds of things are worth weighing at the very least. And it's hard to put yourself in those positions sometimes. I, I'm actually going to go back and, and retroactively change one of my answers that probably the, the, the best way to, to get into accessibility is just to hear people's stories is just to go on Twitter uh, and search for uh, the wheelchair emoji uh, on profiles, which is how people uh, in the disabled community oftentimes uh, showcase that on Twitter and just read stories, just read how they go through everyday lives, read about some of the barriers that are placed in front of them for reasons of ignorance or reasons of malice uh, and just spend just spend an hour doing that. And I, I actually think that's probably a way better first step uh, than than trying to learn it on your own. Yeah. And how we learn this is an important conversation because uh, we've, as we've talked about before, like we're bad as an industry. We don't do a good job in terms of teaching people accessibility from the start. If you, whether you're learning it because you look up stuff on Stack Overflow or you've taken Web Design 101 in college, or a course in high school on intro web design. This is not the first thing you learn in any case. But so often one of the conversations is, if you learn to build good, semantic, well-structured HTML, you're on the first step to getting down that road. And so often people don't learn that. They just learn how to do the thing. And they don't understand the underpinnings of it or the additional stuff they can do to help it, whether that's adding alt tags or uh, ARIA roles or things like that. There's so much more to it. Just understanding that when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I can't use your thing, it's not a criticism of you. 
it's an opportunity to expand what you know and what you think about how we build things um, because that's the goal. We just have to always get better and there will always be blind spots and that's okay. The web's a big thing. There are a lot of freaking tools that we have to learn and, and use and, and build with and none of us are going to be perfect at all of it. But at least right now, I, I think we're a long way from this idea of, well, if I build a three-story building, I got to put a ramp and not stairs. I got to put an elevator uh, and all this. Like Those things are built into codes that we just don't have yet in our industry. It's difficult to say how we could move the needle of what the standard level of education is, of what the baseline idea of what a developer or designer or content writer should know. Uh, because there are so many problems that they all kind of feed into each other like some kind of nasty Ouroboros, right? Uh, but one thing that we can do definitively, I think, is to change the way we prioritize other human beings and to change the way we talk about issues. Uh, to me, that goes back to the my favorite uh, drum to beat, which is talking about ableism. Because if we acknowledge that there is a systemic bias that informs the way that we write education and the way that we prioritize what people should know to get jobs we will change the kind of things that they learn and the kinds of things people look for when they're hiring. And that will feed back into itself to create a better baseline and a better culture. Yeah. And yeah, hiring is a, a big part of that, right? Hire the people that will advocate and, and stop and push back on things and acknowledge them when they do it. We, we need those moments where, you know what, folks have to fight a little bit and it's okay. And be subversive. One of my favorite pieces of advice is, just don't tell people that you need time to do that. Just tell them you need more time. They don't need to know why. If your marketing team wants a thing built and the thing is complicated and it needs some accessibility work to be right, don't tell them that. Just say it's going to take three weeks instead of two. <laughs> and more often than not, you'll get away with it. And then after the fact, you showcase how usable it is and you build that feedback from whether it's users or clients or whatever the case may be, build that as something to come back with later and say, look at the stuff we're doing. We've been kind of doing it on the side. We know that it took longer, whatever, but here's our body of evidence that shows why that was worthwhile. And maybe that can help provide some of that foundation moving forward. I say there'll be some articles in the show notes that can kind of help with some of that. But gentlemen, I appreciate you guys taking the time tonight to sit down with me and, and be on the episode or uh, this episode and, and talk through what you guys are doing. Um, I'll be really interested to see how this pans out over the next you know year, couple years. I mean, this is like I say it's, it's a process, so things will constantly be improving. So maybe we revisit this topic here after a while and see where you are after all the work. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. So if you've been interested in the discussion we've been having tonight, um, if you want to check out Webflow, they're a visual web development platform that lets you design, build, and launch completely custom websites uh, without writing any code. You can combine design, animation, content management, marketing, e-commerce, all of these tools into a single tool that empowers whether you're a non-coder or a coder alike to ship and promote websites of all kinds in a faster and more cost-efficient, more collaborative way. They power websites for innovative companies like Zendesk, IDEO, Lattice, Getaround, and Dell. If you want to check them out, go look at webflow.com. Let them know. I don't know if there's a comment box or anything on their lead form, but if you do, let them know Drunken UX sent you. 
Um, but definitely go take a second and check out their website and let them know that you appreciate them supporting the podcast. Guys, again, thanks a lot for sitting down with us tonight. I know it takes a lot out of your evening, and, and we record late at night. And um, I, I preface everybody by saying that I try not to get too drunk on the show. I will admit, I'm now, <laughs> I, I have killed my Gentleman Jack bottle, so I know that I may be running a little long at the mouth, so hopefully that won't come out in the mix. But uh, first and foremost, um, EJ, take a second, talk about anything you want folks to know about, whether it's you or what you're doing, where they can find you, what you got going on, and then Ruben. You do the same thing. Let them know what you've got going on. See, the problem with these kind of prompts is not that I don't appreciate them, because I do, but as soon as someone asks me what I like or what I'm doing or who I am, I suddenly have no idea what I like, what I'm doing, or who I am. <laughs> it's the most on-the-spot uh, thing I can do, so I'm sorry. No, that's that's fine. I, it's fair. It's what we signed up for when we agreed to be on a podcast, to be honest. I should know better by now. Um, I should have some kind of press kit for myself, you'd think. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I am moderately active on Twitter. You can find me at the handle CodeAbility, C-O-D-E, Ability. Um, I, other things, other cool things I've done, I uh, write docs on the web. I contribute to open source software. I have recently written some really cool things for the Mozilla Developer Network, so check out those things soon. Um, uh, other than that, uh, I tend to just have opinions and yell about them and try to make the web a better place. <laughs> I'm Ruben. You can find me uh, on Twitter uh, at Ruben Sandwich. Uh, I'm uh, slowly trying to live up to the sandwich I was named after. Uh, if you know you have any questions about accessibility, especially if you want to bake accessibility into a website uh, and not tell anybody like what Michael uh, encouraged, please reach out. I will gladly help you do that. Uh, and I think it's also important to remember that we are at the beginning of accessibility because we're at the beginning of understanding who humans are and what humans need. Uh, and this is a great time to get into the field of accessibility and to really advance it so that we include everybody. There's a lot of new writing going on that is fascinating to read into. If you're not looking for the word accessibility, look for the word inclusive design or universal design. Those are other phrases that can factor into uh, this field. I got to particularly give a shout out to EJ for the recommendation. Um, our our website had an audio player, of course, for the podcast, and they said, "Hey, uh, you know, Able Player is a much better, more accessible player than what you guys have now." And so, as we were preparing this episode, I got to looking at it, and I literally, by the time you hear this episode. If you go to our site, we've already released that uh, update to our theme so that you can have access to that. It's got speed controls. It's got a fantastic keyboard controls associated with it. And so, again, it's just a matter of learning because uh, the, what is it, the, the uh, cobbler's children have no shoes. I admit sometimes our website is a little bit of an afterthought after all the audio production and stuff is done. So I understand that I've got some failings there that need to be addressed. And so we work that in and uh, I actually really enjoy uh, uh, that effort and, and the advice. So EJ, thank you for, for pointing that out to me. Let's see. Outside of that, um, all I can tell you is, first and foremost, go by Twitter, Facebook, slash DrunkenUX. We said it at the start. We'll say it at the end. Instagram is slash DrunkenUX podcast. Discord is DrunkenUX.com slash Discord. Uh, if you've got a second and you're listening to us, and whether it's iTunes or Spotify or 
Pocket Casts or wherever you are. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, do the rating thing, whatever. Uh, we love it. It, it helps us out, uh, certainly. Share this far and wide because accessibility isn't talked about enough uh, by any means. So take that time because the most important piece of advice that you can ever take out of anything like this is keep your personas close, but your users closer. Thanks, everybody. EJ, Ruben, for stopping by. Bye-bye. <laughs>